I'd like to speak tonight in a way which both honors the practice that's yet ahead of us here and at the same time honors the process of coming to retreat and leaving retreat and having that be part of the cycle of one's life. I'm working on a book, a couple books, but this particular one is taking a long time, as books sometimes do. Um, And one of the themes of it is spiritual maturity, which I'm just beginning to get old enough to value. (laughs) Myself and many good friends, many of you perhaps, have started spiritual practice often with idealistic or romantic notions. Of course, that's how we start most things. We probably wouldn't get married or have children or go to college or all of those things without those notions. They're not necessarily bad. But in these particular notions of spirituality, we have heard stories. We read Yogananda's you know, autobiography of a yogi, or we read Miller Rape, or we read something of these great enlightened teachers who seem to live always in some altered state of consciousness. Um, The truth is that consciousness, like everything, like the breath, expands and contracts. It's its nature. And I haven't seen anywhere yet a resting place in consciousness in the forms of consciousness. The resting is the resting with movement and not the resting with a state. Have you found any state that stayed? Raise your hand, please. (laughs) I remember going back to see Ajahn Chah, my teacher, after some long period of practice in a Burmese monastery of Mahasi Sayadaw, telling about all the different experiences I had and, you know, these great and very compelling kinds of insights and so forth. And he listened, then I, when I was all done, he kind of looked at me for a while, and he said, you still have any greed? Hatred still in there? How about fear, delusion? I said, yes, 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 each question. He said, carry on, continue. <laughs> that was all. He was a wonderful role model in that way. I remember one time we were going to visit a monastery, a branch monastery of his on the Cambodian border in uh, Sisaket province. And it was down this long dirt highway, and we'd gotten a ride with one of the lay people in his little car. Um, And people in Asia, not unlike some people in the West, Rome especially and so forth, drive like mad people. And he was just wailing along this road, this driver, and it was sort of a lane and a half, and occasionally there were buses, and there were big trucks, and there were water buffalo cart, and there were, you know, cows in the road, and people in bicycles, and he's just leaning on the horn and passing when no one could see anything. And I'm just holding on like this, you know, breathing and meditating, think, well, I guess I'll die as a monk. And, and really, it was very frightening. And I look over at Ajahn Shah, and I see he's holding on, and his knuckles are white, too. <laughs> already. And finally, we get there to the monastery, and he looks over at me, and he smiles. He's really very peaceful as he smiles. He says, scary, wasn't it? 
And it was a wonderful moment because it was a place where it was fine. I think he would have been fine if he died, but it was still scary anyway. It was just what it was. <laughs> so we had these, initially, these romantic or idealistic notions about some kind of consciousness that stays a certain way, or how we're going to be, or what enlightenment is. <coughs> Or we get the idea that we're going to live on this universal level and just touch everybody with great universal compassion and help the world, and if only everyone would do it with us, it would all change, and so forth. Um, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, the teacher of TM, has started two new projects. One is to create these kind of good housing projects called Heaven on Earth Estates. He's building some in Marin County near us. <laughs> The other it said in the paper, under the headline, Magician Guru Go Into the Theme Park Business, Magician Doug Henning, the TV magician, says he and Indian Guru Maharishi Mahesh Yogi will build a $1 billion theme park. There actually it started um, next to Walt Disney World in Orlando, Florida, featuring magic and Eastern-style meditation. The park will open in 1993 and offer 38 major attractions focusing on the themes of knowledge, enlightenment, and entertainment. <laughs> and I suppose you could see what you've just done for a week is entertainment in a certain, it's a movie anyway, isn't it? All different kinds. So we have these different notions of spiritual practice and how it will be and how we're supposed to change. It turns out that it doesn't happen very quickly. It just doesn't. It's not very fast at all. In fact, it's a lifetime's work. I mean, in some ways, maybe that's what we're here for, is just to do that. Someone asked the Dalai Lama how you could tell if spiritual practice was developing correctly or not, or working. He said, well, look at it over some period of time. How are you after 10 years, or 20 years, or 30 years of doing it, you know? Or a lifetime, or two or three. He can look back, I guess, and see. But it was a wonderful perspective to really look at your life. Or Zen Master Suzuki Roshi, from whom I've read it, many retreats. He says, after you've practiced for a while, you realize that it is not possible to make rapid, extraordinary progress. Even though you try very hard, the progress you make is always little by little. It's not like going out in a thunder shower in which you know when you get wet. In a fog, you do not know you're getting wet, but as you keep walking, you get wet little by little. If your mind has ideas of progress or ideals, you may say, oh, this pace is terrible. But actually it is not. For when you get wet in a fog, it is very difficult to dry yourself. So there's no need to worry about progress. It's like studying a foreign language. You cannot do it all of a sudden, but by repeating it over and over, you will master it. It is best to say that we do not even expect to make progress. Just to be sincere, and make our full effort in each moment is enough. It's an amazing thing to say. And it means, in a sense, that we don't expect to make progress because where we're going is here. And what we're after doesn't exist in time, but it exists in some timeless realm. 
It's not grand either, although there are important and amazing moments, wonderful moments where we open and awaken and see things. But they're not necessarily somewhere out there ahead of us. They're actually here all the time when we open. And we come to them by being present or mindful. That's how we see. Zen Master Dogen said, to be enlightened or enlightenment is to be intimate with all things. Enlightenment is to be intimate with all things. It's an amazing thing to say, to be intimate with one's breath or one's sights or sounds or body or feeling. That enlightenment isn't some other place than this fathom-long body and mind. Enlightenment is to be intimate with what's here. What does it mean to be intimate? In a sense, that's what we've been doing all week. You know how hard it is to be intimate in your close relationships, right? We don't even need to talk about that very much. And we could, we could talk all week about it, but... It's even hard, maybe more fundamentally so, it's hard to be intimate with ourself, with our breath, with the pains in our body, with loneliness, with fear, with opening and contracting. And what we're practicing with mindfulness is a kind of moment-to-moment intimacy. And that attention, that connection, that being here is what awakens us or frees us or allows us to grow in wisdom and understanding. As William Blake said, if one is to do good, it must be done in the minute particulars, little by little. General good is the plea of the hypocrite, the flatterer, and the scoundrel. Oh, it's good for everyone. Real good is that moment-to-moment good in this moment with another person in this situation. And that's what we've been practicing. Let's do a little exercise together, a short meditation. It's one of the traditional meditations from Theravada Buddhism that's done in relation to death. So let yourself sit up a little bit. It's not going to be a long sitting, probably a minute or two. You can do it. It's said that the moment of physical death is an important time. I'm sure you can feel that in yourself, right? And that one of the things that's important in going through the transition of physical death to whatever happens afterward is the state of consciousness, the wakefulness and the, the presence that we bring to that. And a way to evoke a wholesome or beautiful or uh, beneficial state of consciousness at the time near death is the following meditation that we'll do, which is a meditation on looking back over one's life. So let your eyes close for a moment. Just let yourself rest and settle here. And feel your breath in your body. Let yourself be aware of the limitedness of this body. 
you're only given this body for a certain time. It breathes and your heart beats. It swallows, it moves. And someday, in 50 years, or 20 years, or two years, or two months, someday your breath will stop and your heart will stop. And this body that you've been entrusted, you will depart. It's true. It's inevitable. It's a fact. Feel that, that you're here in this body for a time. And sensing the truth of this, let yourself sense that you might die at any time, because we don't know. And near death, let yourself look back in your life now and let yourself remember, visualize, see, remember, sense, as you look back, two good deeds that you've done, two things that you've done in this life that were really good, looking back. And as you remember them, also notice how they affect consciousness, how they affect your state of mind, your state of being. Take what comes, whatever it is. Let yourself come back here. Looking back over your life and sensing it as a whole. Let me ask, what images, what good deeds came to some of you, if you would speak? I know it may be a little hard um, if I asked people to tell me 20 rotten things they did, a lot of hands would go up. But we get more embarrassed to speak about something that's good that we did. Please. So you sat with someone who was having really frightening surgery and talked to him and held his hand and were just there for him at that time. Thank you. Someone else? Give me your speakers. <laughs> Very important. So you remembered how you had mistreated him and beat him up as a younger brother. And as a restitution and an expression of your love, you gave him your speakers, which probably... Yes, beautiful. Thank you. Someone else. There was a man in Port 
authority who didn't have a home. And um, I spent time and I talked with him and I really cared about him. Hmm. I really loved him. So there was someone in Port Authority Bus Terminal, New York, which is a pretty intense place in its own right, who was homeless, didn't have a home. And you just spent time with him and listened and cared about him for a time. Thank you. Someone else? Uh, home birth of my daughter. Home birth of your daughter. Wonderful. Thank you. Another? Helped an old lady cross the street in a snowstorm. Yes. Yes. Someone else who's back there? Yeah. I, uh, I traveled to England and uh, made amends to my mother, and my amends were also like a lot of other people, just spending time. When? Allowing her crocheting and just allowing myself to get irritated and upset. And we just had a relationship instead of me dashing in went back to England and spent time with your mother as she was crocheting having a real relationship with her and made amends to her in doing that thank you we could go on for a while I hope you're beginning to get the gist of this exercise people look back over a whole lifetime of events. And the moments that come at the time of death or the time that you look back are these kind of moments. Very simple and precious. And they're all the same moment. Being with the homeless person in Port Authority bus terminal or making amends to one's mother or expressing to your brother that you love him after all or being there for the home birth of one's son or helping someone across the street, or holding the hand of someone in surgery. Someone raised their hand and said, I called my father before he died and I told him I loved him. And that was the moment, that phone call. You know? Or someone said, really simply, when I come up to a parking space at the same time as another person, I always give them the parking space. <laughs> or I go along the beach and I pick up litter, and I saw myself picking up litter from the beach, you know? Or this nurse said, well, I don't do much, you know, I work in an emergency room, but when children come in who have died, I hold them for a while anyway. Can you hear how simple it is? Now, many of you, or some of you, probably had trouble coming up with two good deeds. That's true, isn't it? If I were to ask how many had difficulty, I know a third of the hands would go up. Do you think that's because you didn't do any good deeds in your last 200,000 activities? <laughs> Obviously not. It makes no sense. Really what that says is how hard we are on ourselves. That, you know, this image comes, nah, that's not pure, that one comes, that's no good, and, and so forth. That we're so judgmental of ourselves and our lives that we won't allow ourselves to honor our beauty, to honor what's good in us. You all did thousands of good deeds. We've done many of them just sitting here this week, really. 
But what's important to sense in it, you look back over a whole life, what mattered? What were the moments? And again, like Dogen said, enlightenment is to be intimate with all things. What characterizes these moments are moments of a kind of precious intimacy with a man or a woman, a brother or sister, a child, a daughter, a son, a parent. And they're extraordinary. Mother Teresa put it this way. She said, we cannot do great things. As humans, we cannot do great things. We can only do small things with great love. And that's what these moments are. There's an aspect of Buddhism, or teaching in Sanskrit and Pali, that expresses the maturity of heart that's captured in these moments of our life. And that's the teachings of the living life as a bodhisattva. Bodhisattva is a compound word. Bodhi means awakened, and sattva means a being. So it's a being who is committed to awakening, committed to compassion and truth and clarity and presence, to bringing awakening in every situation of life as best they can. One of the interesting things about bodhisattvas is they do it on and on and on. It's not kind of a time-limited thing. I think I'll be a bodhisattva for six months and see if I like it. It said, even if the sun should arise in the west and everything in the world be turned upside down, the bodhisattva has only one way. Even if the sun comes up the other way, the way of the bodhisattva in any situation is to try and bring compassion or caring or wakefulness or truthfulness to that situation. And in uh, many of the Buddhist traditions, one would take vows as a bodhisattva. I vow to awaken or to save, to bring liberation to all sentient beings. I vow to master all dharmas, even though they're numberless. Even though difficulties and defilements and hindrances are boundless, I vow to conquer them all. And these are serious vows, right? <laughs> However long it takes which is to say one dedicates one's life, inwardly dedicates one's life to awakening and to compassion. And from this inner capacity, which we all have, we can begin to see with eyes that allow us to see the sorrow and the suffering and the difficulty of life, to see the impermanence of it, the tentativeness of life, there are different ways that we respond when we see that. Sometimes you see how much suffering and how frightening and how tentative life is. And the initial response is to want to run away. I want to get out. No more. Enough. It's too scary. I'm, I'm not going to let myself love again. I was hurt too much. But a whole other response is possible in which we let ourselves see the sorrows and difficulty and pain and beauty and mystery and respond instead of running with the heart of universal compassion and say, yes, there's sorrow and this heart is great enough to touch that sorrow and to bring light into that darkness. 
first for ourselves, that's why we practice here, and then for all beings. I'll read you a story. It's a friend of mine who's a wonderful woman and a healer, a physician. She works with uh, cancer patients. She said, I had a young man in my practice with uh, cancer of the leg, which was eventually removed at the hip in order to save his life. He was 24 years old when I started working with him, and he was a very angry young man with a lot of bitterness and a deep sense of injustice and a profound hatred for all the well people around him and his youth that had been stolen from him. After working with this man, oh wait, because it seemed so unfair to him that he had suffered this terrible loss so early in his life. You can imagine. After working with this man for a couple of years, painting and drawing and sand play therapy and weeping and grieving and all the things, bringing him back from the dead because he had not wanted to live, he just wanted to die there was finally a profound shift. He began to come out of himself. And after some time, he began to visit other people in the hospitals who had suffered severe physical losses, and he would tell me the most wonderful stories of these visits. Once he visited a young woman who was almost his own age. It was a hot day in Palo Alto, and he was in running shorts, so that his artificial leg showed when he came into her hospital room. The woman was so depressed about the loss of her breasts that she wouldn't even look at him, wouldn't pay any attention to him or anyone. The grief was so profound. The nurses had left her radio playing, probably in order to cheer her up. So desperate to get her attention, He unstrapped his leg and began dancing around the room on one leg, snapping his fingers to the music. He did this for but a short time, and she turned over and looked at him in amazement and then burst out laughing and said, Man, if you can dance, I can sing. (laughs) And that was the beginning of her healing. So the vow, the traditional vow of the bodhisattva is that I will save all beings. And that's a serious vow to take. Does that mean I, Jack Cornfield, you know, or I, Sylvia Borstein, or I, John Travis, or whoever, I'm going to go out kind of like Superman or Batman or whatever it is, you know, Wonder Woman in your case. (laughs) And save all beings? Who are all these beings that we're going to save? Are they really separate than ourselves? If we look deeply at this question, perhaps we discover that it's not how it seems initially, that maybe one being is all beings. There was a workshop that I remember teaching at Esalen some years ago, and part of this workshop had a deep process of meditative forgiveness. There was a woman in the workshop who had dealt for many years with profound abuse in her life, um, pain and all the kind of rage and grieving and uh, the scars that were left from that. And she'd been working with it for a long time and 
At this particular time, she was breathing and meditating and doing various things. And somehow in the midst of it, she came to, finally in the right time, a place of deep forgiveness where she could see how the person who had abused her had, as is almost always the case, themselves been abused, much like her, just a generation before. And she could see the pain that person was in and the cycle of it from generation to generation. And so this something shifted in her and this light came in her and she was really forgiving. She went home, this was after a week there, and in her mailbox when she got home was a letter. It was a letter from the person that had been her abuser. She hadn't talked to this person for 10 years and had a very painful relationship with them. She opened the letter and it said, for some reason, I'm compelled to write to you. I've been thinking about you and I just want to say to you how sorry I am for all that happened. I know it was painful and there's no way I can make up for it, but I must tell you that I've thought of you today and I want to ask your forgiveness and tell you how sorry I am. And the letter was dated the day that she did the work of forgiveness in that workshop. Came from the other side of the country. So one wonders when it said, I will save all beings, which being we're going to save. In the Amazon, there are 900 species of figs, each pollinated by only one species of wasp. Each of these wasp species is called a keystone species because so many others rely on it for their continued existence. You see, figs are the primary source of food for 75% of all the vertebrae animals in the rainforest. For three months of the year, when most of the fruit trees are barren, the mammals and birds depend on only a little bit of certain species of food, most of which is figs. So. If there are no wasps, then there are no figs. One kind of wasp dies out, this whole kind of fig tree dies out. And no figs, then no spider monkeys, and peccaries, and toucans, wonderful birds. And no monkeys and peccaries, then no jaguars, and so forth. They're all interconnected, and we are. Here's a scientific fact for you. What do you think are the chances that a deep breath inhaled today will contain a molecule from Julius Caesar's dying breath? <laughs> 99 out of 100. There are so many molecules in each breath <sighs> that when they get dispersed, it takes their time, but when they get dispersed, that there's a molecule in, of Julius Caesar's last breath in every bit of air and earth. Isn't that extraordinary? Or within seven years, every molecule in your body rotates and changes. This is not what was here in 1984. <laughs> it isn't. Every molecule has changed, except a few in certain parts of the central nervous system. All the rest are completely washed out. We're a pattern that takes new things in and other things fill that place. We're just a changing pattern. 
and we're all completely interconnected. Julius Caesar and the wasps in the Amazon and your parents and grandparents and great-grandparents and their great-grandparents and the Native American elders and the buffalo. And all of us can't be separated. What we are is a pattern in the stance. And when we get silent and still enough, the sense of self and I and separateness that is made by our thought and our attachment begins to dissolve. And in deep meditation, we can actually experience it very directly. Now, when we discover this interconnectedness, this sense that life isn't I am this and that's the rest, but there we're, we're a kind of interbeing stream with everything else. Then a kind of maturity also comes where we see that there isn't one way to practice or to live or to discover this, but many cycles and seasons and expressions of dharma and truth. Time in nature, time meditating, time in service, all expressions of our interconnectedness, of the opening of our consciousness. There are as many expressions as there are different cultures or different situations or different people. It's wonderful when you look at the archetypes of the bodhisattva in the Buddhist tradition because there's a whole variety of them. I just name a couple now, but, you know... um, One of the great Vipassana teachers uh, to bring meditation to Westerners is this man, Goenka, who was John's teacher, Joseph and Sharon's teacher. I stayed with him, but just for a very short time. And he was a very rich uh, businessman. In the Buddhist text, they call them merchants. But basically, that means a businessman. These businessmen would come and support the Buddha. That was an important part of the Sangha. And... He enjoyed the marketplace, and he played in the marketplace, and he was very successful, as was his family. They were millionaires. But he also became a great meditation master, and in it has taught thousands and thousands of Western students in a very deep way as a millionaire businessman. And his teacher, Uba Kin, who taught him, was not only a businessman and a meditation master, but he was a cabinet minister in the Burmese government for many years, from the day Burma became independent from Britain in the late 1940s. He was the minister of several different cabinet posts, and he'd make all the people in his office, he was, among other things, he was secretary of the treasury, and all the people in the Burmese office of the secretary of the treasury had to meditate for an hour before they started their day. (laughs) Could you imagine that at the IRS or the, you know? the treasury in Washington. So that was his way of doing it. You know, or there's Deepama that we talk about at some retreats. She's sort of our, our local saint. Um, wonderful meditation master woman. A Bengali housewife who lived really simply and took care of her daughter and her grandchildren and so forth. She was a grandmother and she was also a master of all kinds of yogic practices and a very profound, wonderful teacher who gave the most beautiful blessings. She would hug you and bless you and kiss you and whatever, and you'd, you know, you'd just get stoned from her hug. Ah, oh, <laughs> kind of grin for about a day after she hugged you. This wonderful teacher. 
Yeah. She lived very simply, unlike, you know, she wasn't this great. She lived in the most simple fashion, this very small apartment, couple of rooms in a poor section of Calcutta. You know, unlike the millionaire businessman, her way was just to live extremely simply. One day I bought a lottery ticket. I thought, well, I'll get some money for Deepama. And I said, whatever comes, I'll give to her. And I thought I'd have the fun of winning because she, she was such a great yogi and no doubt I'll win. Um, you know, and, and I'll just have the joy of passing it on. Um, and I remember talking to Joseph about it. I said, well, I bought Deepama a lottery ticket. She's such an amazing yogi, I'll probably win. And he said, well, she has good karma as a meditator, but take a look at her money karma. <laughs> I didn't win anything, of course. But she was a wonderful kind of very different model. And then there are the yogis in caves. There still are in the Himalayas in northern India. Tibetan lamas and yogis and uh, both men and women, some, also some uh, doing tantric practice of a husband and wife who will take a cave and be hermits there. A friend of mine visited some of the hermits in the Himalayas right on the border of Tibet and India. And he said, he remembered that going kind of on the supply train that went once every six months and the Dalai Lama gave him permission. This was a Westerner who was ordained as a Tibetan monk. He said, I visited this one hermit and he came out of his cave and he just was grinning. There was just this, this sense of light that poured out of him. And I tried to talk to him. I asked him, you know, what practice do you do? He said, practice? I said, yeah, you know, do you, you know, pay attention to your body or, or follow your breath or something like that? And he looked at me kind of quizzically and he said, it breathes itself. It just, it breathes itself. <laughs> So there are people in caves who, that's their way, and they spend a whole lifetime generating compassion and love for every being in the world. I'm really glad they're there, and I believe that they affect us. There are all these different models, and then there are Western models. Sylvia sometimes talks about the first patriarch of Berkeley and the, you know, the second patriarch of San Anselmo, where we live, and the people around us who are the bodhisattvas. So there are all these different ways to do it. And for most people, it's many cycles, sometimes in retreat, sometimes out in the marketplace, sometimes engaged in the world, sometimes with one's family, sometimes back into retreat. Sometimes it's working to help with the environment, really seeing that as your place of dharma, the ecological necessity of caring for the air and the water and really doing something, or this sphere of politics. There's a big movement through the Buddhist Peace Fellowship to bring the spirit of Buddha Dharma into social action in the world in many ways. Or in other ways, working, you know, at the local or state or national level politically. Or education or children. Krishnamurti and the Dalai Lama, I remember asking the Dalai Lama, what would he do if he came to live in America? He said, I would start schools for children and start them when they were young to learn the Dharma. Krishnamurti did the same thing. His last years mostly focused on education. So all these different expressions. But in our culture, retreats are particularly important, one piece, because we're so busy we need the silence. And because we get so caught up 
We need a place to open and be attentive and to go deep so that we can see from some other perspective, so that our consciousness does get altered or opened or cleansed or purified. So our vision opens and we can see reality in a new way or let things shine even in the difficulties. Each of us needs to listen and honor what is the right cycle for ourselves. Is it the year for retreat? Or is it the 10 years to raise your child? Or is it the time to serve? Or is it the time to do your work through creativity or artistic expression? Which is the right thing for you? There is no right way. One can make a good case for all these ways. You can make a great case for social action. There are people who are hungry, lots of them, and they need our love and our money and our caring and our time and our energy. There are chemical weapons and biological weapons, and they're still being built around the world. We still sell billions of dollars of killing machines every year. We export it's one of our biggest exports. That's what we sell, this country. There are death squads in Guatemala or El Salvador, other places, Lebanon, Tibet. There are homeless people now, endemic, so many places, cold and homeless people. So one thing is to say, we can't wait. Can't just wait till you're completely enlightened, whatever that is. Suzuki Roshi says it nicely. He says, strictly speaking, there's no such thing as an enlightened person. There's only enlightened activity. If somebody thinks they're enlightened, that's not it. So one way is that we must respond because it's so compelling. Someone's child is hungry. Someone is homeless. Yet on the other hand, the roots of that homelessness, the roots of the warfare, the roots of the starvation here and grain elevators full there, are human greed and prejudice and fear and hatred. They come from the human heart. And if that isn't faced, it's just one regime toppling another and becoming repressive again. We've seen it over and over and over. Somebody has to face the forces of greed and prejudice and hatred and delusion and aggression and discover another possibility. And guess who that somebody is? That's us. So to sit, in some way, is also a radically political act to face ourselves and to learn how to face those forces and not be taken over by them. And that's what you've done this week. Martin Luther King, again, in the difficulties of his march. We will match your capacity to inflict suffering with our capacity to endure suffering. We will meet your physical force with soul force. We will not hate you, but we cannot in all good conscience obey your unjust laws. We will soon wear you down by our capacity to suffer. And in winning our freedom, we will so appeal to your hearts and conscience that we will win your freedom as well. Isn't that extraordinary? 
And that's the kind of strength found in ourselves that then transforms the world. Spiritual maturity is not about some ideal seeking to perfect the world. It's never going to be perfected. It's not its nature in that way. It's not perfect. It never has been and it never will be. Nor you, for that matter. You won't either. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, how did she put it? She said, I'm not okay and you're not okay and that's okay. (laughs) So it's not about perfection of oneself or the world, but it's learning to live in a simple way and touch one moment after another with wisdom, with understanding, with compassion, with our presence. Remember those good, two good deeds again, those moments that out of a whole lifetime are with our family or, or a homeless person or somebody, that moment we were just there. They're not resume deeds. I went to India and spent time with Mother Teresa. They're moments, one moment after another, moments of awakening, of being present, of letting go. We get asked often, how am I to live in the world? How can I live this? It's a lifetime task. It's not, you're not going to do it this year. But to live in an awake or a free way, to move through the world without leaving a wake of, or a trace that is unfinished, takes a lot of humility to live as a bodhisattva, to to take on this path that we've all taken. The humility is to see that you can keep learning and not that you have it or have got it. Someone said, the first thing that you learn in life is that you're a fool. The last thing you learn is you're the same fool. (laughs) Sometimes I think I understand everything and then I regain consciousness. That was Ray Bradbury who said that. It takes a kind of humility that you don't have it figured out, and you're not supposed to figure it out. I have all the answers. I mean, you read the Encyclopedia Britannica, it doesn't help a whole lot. It's full of a lot of knowledge, but that's not it. Wisdom is something different. It's really, it's a a state of of our being in our heart. And to live in that way takes humility and a kind of surrender or commitment, a trusting heart, a going into the unknown. Rodney talked about fear last night. When I think about fear, fear is the membrane between what we know and something that we don't know. And so when fear comes, it's as if a little light goes on inside and it says, about to grow, about to grow. That's what it is. You're going to experience something new. I don't want to grow today, thank you. I don't think I want to grow in that way. It takes a surrender or a trusting heart, a commitment to go into the unknown. Because no one has ever lived your life before. Or no one has ever been a bodhisattva in 1991. It's a whole new game. I remember a woman came to me in therapy And she'd been someone who'd been depressed for a long time in her life. She'd had a lot of loss and tragedy, and she was very sad, 
And she was really in it, and she'd been in it a long time. And she'd done some grief work, but she was still really in that. That was her sense of identity. That's who she thought she was. So we did some work, we talked about it and meditated together. Finally I said, all right, let's do an exercise. Kind of like I do at times in interviews working with people. Close your eyes, let's just pay attention deeply to this. So she closed her eyes and I said, well, feel your grief. How big is it? Let it expand, be as big as it wants. Mountain of grief. The whole earth is full of grief. I said, all right, let the earth be full of grief. Instead of all these years of thinking it was too much, let it be there. So she let it be. And it grieved and it wept. And then I said, what happened? She said, it's all, it's exploding now. It's filled with rage. I said, well, let it explode. How big is it? Nuclear explosion. All right, let there be a nuclear explosion. How many of them? Lots of explosions, all right? It's like a sun. It incinerates everything. Fine. Let it be a sun. Incinerate everything. She did that for a while. I said, what's happening? Ashes. Okay, how big are the ashes? Just let ashes, ashes, let it open. Enormous. Fill the whole solar system, the whole galaxy. Galaxies of ashes. She didn't like that. You know, I, she said, everything's dead. I said, well, all right, let it be ashes. She said, it just stays ashes. Well, let it stay ashes. Still stays ashes. I said, fine, let's stay with it for a while. Let it be ashes for a thousand years. Ashes. Still didn't like it, all right? Let it be ashes for a million years. Ah, a million years. Ten million years. Fifty million years. A hundred million years just sitting with it. This process took about 10 or 15 minutes, right? <laughs> okay, what's happening now? Well, it's ashes and ashes. It's changing. What's changing? Now the ashes dissolve and it's just cold, dark space, utterly lonely and cold. I said, fine, let it be utterly lonely. Just be aware of that. Lonely, lonely, open space. Oh, it's forever. It never changes. Fine, let it be that way forever. 10 million years, 500 million years, went through the same process. A billion years, it's just dark and empty. All of a sudden, I saw a flicker on her face. I said, what happened? What's happening? She shook her head, no. I said, it's all right. You can feel it. She said, there's something going on over in the corner there. <laughs> I said, do you want it to be dead longer? She said, yes. I said, fine. <laughs> Long as you like. Two billion years, three billion, as long as you want. So we stayed in a while longer. I said, all right, what's happening? She said, there's a little light over there. Okay, see what that is. Oh, there's a star, there's more light. I said, well, I'll just let the light be. The light's getting warmer. There's a planet. And she shook her head again. I said, what is it? She said, it's green. <laughs> I said, well, see what it is. She said, there's moisture and rain and things are starting to grow again. And she couldn't stop it. And it all came back again. Because it always does. If we let ourselves, if we have learned in ourself the trust which is really to die, this process is a process of death and rebirth over and over again. If we learn to die, our heart learns some trust that is more timeless than this limited sense of ourself. So to live we don't know where we're going to go, but we can learn to let go and see what this adventure is with humility and trust and a kind of surrender.
takes a strong commitment. It also takes joy. You know, we talk a lot about suffering, but joy is one of the seven factors of enlightenment. You can't get enlightened without joy. How do you like that? That's what the Buddha said anyway. Joy of body, joy of mind, rapture of being. The joy of mystery and amazement. The joy that comes out of purity when we're still and collected and present and concentrated. Not when we're worried or trying to get something or reach some goal or change something, but the joy that comes when we're really here and open. It just fills us by itself. It's natural. The joy for no reason or no sake. There's a book that I've read recently that someone told me about entitled B-Ball, The Team That Never Lost a Game. And it's, it's about a basketball team in San Francisco um, that is run at the uh, San Francisco Center for people with special needs or handicapped people. And this guy who'd been a high school basketball aficionado and coach was going to have his own basketball team, kind of his thing he was going to do. And they asked if he wanted to coach this, so he had all his ideas and stuff. And he went to this place, and he said, he writes the story, the first day he got there, and there were only four people who were there, one of whom was in a wheelchair, right? This was his team. And then finally he said, the six-foot-two black woman came striding out of the men's bathroom and said, I'm ready, where's the game? <laughs> right? So he had his five people for his team. He said it took him the first, you know, he had all these ideas, the plays they were going to learn, stuff like that. The first day it took them for 45 minutes just to get the five of them lined up along one line <laughs> facing the same direction. <laughs> and he began to realize that it was a different game than he had planned. And as they learned, he stayed there week after week and kind of taught them some basketball. The guy in the wheelchair would roll over and try and get it up and so forth. Then they started playing games with other special needs and handicapped teams. He said one of his team players was so devoted, they didn't have a good sense necessarily of number or time. So this guy didn't know what time was. There's a game tomorrow. So he went, the coach went early, happened to be driving by on an errand, and he saw the... This, this young man who was on his team at seven in the morning sitting out by the door, even though the game was at the four in the afternoon. And he said, what are you doing here? He's, and he said, well, coach, you said the game is today. And so as soon as I got up, he got up as soon as it got light and I came over here, I'm waiting for the game. He w wanted to make sure he was there for the game. And then they played a variety of games. They have cheerleaders. He said, we might as well do it. We have hot dogs. We have cheerleaders. We take a break in the middle of the game and turn on music and people dance and then we go back to playing. And depending how many people come, that's who's on our team. Sometimes we have five. Sometimes we have 11 or 18 on one side, you know, 12 on the other. He said, we have the only basketball team that ever scored a million points in a game because one of our guys got to be the scorekeeper and he really liked pushing the button, you know? So one of the factors of enlightenment is joy. 
And joy comes not through making something, but through simply a, a joy for no reason, the discovery or the purity of ourselves that comes when we really let ourselves open. And that too is part of what we do here. This arises as a kind of shift of identity from the small sense of self, I'm going to get this, and I was this, I'm deficient, or I need that, or I'm angry, or I hope to, or all those kind of small self things. When we become really present and let go of all those ideas, this kind of mysterious thing opens and we feel our restlessness and pain and all the things we've run from. And as those get purified through our attention over and over, there's a kind of dissolving of the whole sense of who we are. And that instead then gets filled with light and it gets filled with joy by, by itself. And it's quite interesting. The light is literal when concentration and, and a steadiness comes in meditation or at other times in our being. You see light. Your body becomes light. It's like bright lights like those there shining on you or fill you. I don't know why it is, but it's true. We are made of light. And so there's this wonderful sense of joy that begins to shine in us for no reason at all other than that it's who we are. Now, an interesting thing in that story I read you, if I can find this piece, that man who was dancing on his one leg, he came back some years later to work with my friend, this, this doctor, and they talked about the struggle he'd gone through in his case. She was sort of his therapist. And she said she wanted to return to him the drawings from his early years. She took out the folder, and he looked through them. He said, look at this. It was his earliest drawing. She'd asked him to draw a picture of his body. And he drew this vase, and then he made a crack in it with a black crayon. And he went back and forth over the crack until there was this thick layer of black crayon on it and black all around it like it could never be fixed. That was how he felt. And he looked at it over over again. It could never hold water. It would never work, this phase. And he held it for a bit, and he looked at her. He said, you know, this drawing isn't finished. And so he put it down again with the crayons, and he picked up a yellow crayon, and he began to color yellow all around the crack. And he said, you see here where it's broken? That's where the light shines through. The human spirit is an extraordinary thing. And we lose a sense of this greatness, and we get caught, and we get afraid and attached. That seems to be part of the game of being human, being here. But to encounter the Dharma is to reawaken that bodhisattva within us, that capacity, that memory of who we are and who we can live as. Remember the first verse of the Dhammapada, of the verses of the Buddha, where he says, the heart or mind is the forerunner of all things. Out of that comes all things. And if we act with an impure heart or mind, sorrow follows us, just like the wheel of the cart follows the oxen who draws it. But if we act in this world with a pure heart, 
pure mind, then happiness will surely and inevitably follow us as closely as our own shadow wherever we go. To undertake a spiritual practice is to remember, to touch, to awaken this possibility of clarity, of wisdom, of compassion, of the light shining through the darkness. It's to begin to untangle all the things that we're lost and caught in, moment by moment, in that very intimate way, not in a grand way, but in a simple way, moment by moment, and in untangling that to discover the the freedom that the Buddha found and that is also our birthright. And so the last thing to end this talk I would like to read to you is in part dedicated to what's going on in the Middle East. And it's a passage that comes from a novel. And I dedicate it to the Middle East, to what's going on there or what may be going on. Because as the Buddha said, all is mind made, made of mind and heart. And if that's so, then everything is possible and anything difficult that we've done can also be undone. So in this novel, a man is sitting watching a television, watching a movie from World War II, you know, all those endless black and white movies of World War II. But somehow, the movie gets put on, the reel is put on backwards. And so he sees the movie run backwards. And there he is sitting, and this is how it looks to him. American planes full of holes in wounded men and corpses take off backwards from an airfield in England. Over France, a few German fighter planes flew at them backwards, sucked bullets and shells fragments from some of the planes and crewmen. They did the same for the wrecked American bombers on the ground, and those planes flew up backwards to join the formation. The bombers, the formation flew backwards over a German city that was in flames. The bombers opened their bomb bay doors, exerted miraculous magnetism which shrunk the fires, gathered them into cylinder, cylindrical steel containers, and lifted the containers by magic into the bellies of the planes. The containers were stored neatly in racks. But there were still a few wounded Americans, though, and some of the bombers were in bad repair. Over France, though, German fighters came up again and made everything and everybody as good as new. (laughs) When the bombers got back to their base, the steel cylinders were taken from the racks and shipped back to the United States where factories were operating day and night, dismantling the cylinders, separating the dangerous contents into minerals. Touchingly, it was mainly women who did this work. The minerals were then shipped to specialists in remote areas. It was their business to put them into the ground, to hide them cleverly so that they would never hurt anybody ever again. Isn't that extraordinary? So let's sit for a moment, please.
within each of us is a capacity to awaken like the Buddha or the great Bodhisattva of compassion. He or she is us. And in that awakening, we can bring a gift to every being and every moment and every situation of life. It takes a surrender and a commitment in your practice to touch that, to really stay with it, to stay with whatever arises sit, walk, and open moment after moment. To be intimate with what arises. So as the last few days of the retreat come upon us, you've quieted down and you've opened yourself some, stay with the practice. Really give yourself to it because you don't know when or if you'll be able to be in silence and supported this way again. Really pay attention and open and listen deeply. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.